the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, today, of course, is a monumental day as Congress convened earlier in the day to determine who the next president of the United States would be, as is required by the Constitution. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but all eyes have been focused on the Georgia runoff races, this special election that would determine the makeup of the U.S. Senate. Well, Mr. Ossoff, uh, with 98 percent of the votes reporting, has garnered 50.2 percent of the vote, and in the um, Warnock-Loeffler uh, runoff. Warnock has uh, garnered 50.6% of the vote. Uh, each of the opponents had 49.8% or 49.4% respectively, which tells us at this point uh, that they um, are the victors. Now, under Georgia law, if the margin between the victor and the rival is small enough, and I think in each of these cases that might be the case, uh, the the um, opponent can request a um, Recount, So that's very likely to happen. But as it stands at this moment, it appears, and I want to be very careful about not calling the race, but it appears that both Democrats have won in the Georgia runoff. And we'll continue to follow that story as it develops. And uh, again, there's significant um, fallout, depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on with that outcome. Well, the Georgia runoffs, Purdue was in a tight race. Loeffler wasn't ready to concede after Warnock's uh, projected win. But it appears at this point that both the Democrats have won. Looking back earlier in the day, U.S. Senator David Perdue remained in a tight race with Democrat John Ossoff earlier in the day. Votes continue to be counted uh, in Tuesday's two U.S. Senate runoffs in Georgia. Meanwhile, the Fox News decision decks, they projected that Democrat Raphael Warnock, uh, the pastor, would unseat appointed to U.S. Um, Senator Kelly Loeffler in the state's other contest. Loeffler encouraged her supporters earlier in the day to keep fighting, refusing to concede her Senate runoff election despite Warnock claiming victory. There's not really much that her supporters can do to keep fighting, but nonetheless, that's political speak for I'm not yet ready to concede. And she may, given the uh, final outcome, have the, uh, the right under Georgia law to request a recount. Very, very close races in both of these runoff Uh, Senate uh, contests. There are a lot of votes out there, she said, and as you all know, we have a path to victory and we're staying on it. Thanks to each and every one of you, every door knocker, every conversation. Well, her campaign issued a statement early Wednesday saying, as we've said repeatedly over the last several weeks and as recently as this evening, this is an exceptionally close election that will require time and transparency to be certain the results are fair and accurate and the voices of Georgians are heard. The campaign wrote, we will mobilize every available resource and exhaust every legal resource to ensure all legal cast ballots are properly counted. We believe in the end, Senator Perdue will be victorious. Now, if Democrats capture both Georgia seats, they and their two independent allies would take control of the U.S. Senate on a 50-50 split with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris being able to break any tie votes. So again, very consequential. 
And other developments, squad members, as they're called, uh, call the uh, Georgia runoffs prematurely. We got Mitch out, they said. They may actually be right. Biden's chief of staff mocked Loeffler's plan to object to the election certification, which took place earlier in the day. And Georgia Republicans gained a court victory for ballot count observers in Atlanta. Tucker Carlson points out, or rather projects, that Democrats are on the verge of unchecked power. Meanwhile, the president put his focus on the vice president, saying that if vice president decertifies, he will win the presidency, referring to himself. President Trump earlier Wednesday put the focus on the vice president, saying that if Pence comes through for us and decertifies the Electoral College results, Trump will win the presidency. Uh, Trump tweets, uh, Trump's tweet rather, put renewed pressure on the vice president who presided over today's joint session of Congress to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election. And as we were just uh, preparing to open the mic for today's program, I do have a quote from the vice president who said, it's my considered judgment that my oath to support and defend the Constitution constrains me from claiming unilateral authority to determine which electoral votes should be counted and which should not. This was in a statement that was released just before the joint session of Congress began. As president of the Senate, the vice president is presiding over the session. The purpose of the session is to count electoral votes. Well, under the Electoral College system, voters choose electors. Those electors then vote almost always for the candidates that receive the most ballots in their state. Congress meets in the January after an election to tally those votes. Well, typically a uh, rote affair this session, it's going to uh, take on heightened significance after seven states sent two uh, certificates rather to Washington, one for Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and one for President Donald Trump. Biden won the states, but Trump has said he was cheated. Well, Trump and some Republicans argue that Pence has the exclusive authority to reject electoral votes for Biden and choose the ones for Trump. A lawsuit asking a court to support that view was rejected by a district judge. An appeal was dismissed, though the plaintiff earlier Wednesday asked the Supreme Court to intervene. And as we've discussed here before, the U.S. Supreme Court is very reluctant to uh, rule in favor of or to make a decision rather that will ultimately overturn an election. Well, the president has repeatedly uh, called on the vice president to act, saying that if Pence comes through for us, we will win the presidency. The vice president, though, described his role as presiding officer as largely ceremonial. We talked a bit about this yesterday, but he noted that members of Congress can act by objecting to electoral votes. Over 100 Republicans plan to do just that and did. They will um, contest at least three states with the hope that a senator supports those challenges to another three or four. Objections require signatures from a senator and a representative. They trigger a two-hour debate and a vote. A simple majority of each chamber would uphold an objection. Then after that two-hour period, the full House and the full Senate would vote. Well, given the voting irregularities that took place in our November elections and the disregard of state election statutes by some officials, I welcome the efforts of Senate and House members who have stepped forward to use their authority under the law to raise objections and present evidence, the vice president said. He said he'd make sure that objections that meet the requirements are given proper consideration and criticized people who have described objections as improper or undemocratic, accusing them of ignoring more than 130 years of history and pointing out that Democrats raised objections in Congress the last three times a Republican candidate for president has prevailed. So this is not unprecedented. Again, for the last three Republican presidents, the Democrats have objected. In other news, uh, President-elect Joe Biden plans to nominate Merrick Garland 
for attorney general. Now, this may be somewhat surprising. We knew that he would play a role in the Biden administration, and most thought that would be as a Supreme Court nominee. But uh, rumor has it that President-elect Joe Biden's pick for attorney general will be Judge Merrick Garland. Three Democratic sources confirmed. Garland serves as the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia uh, Circuit. President Barack Obama, as you might recall, nominated him for the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016, but Senate Republicans blocked his confirmation. And that bled over into the current administration uh, as to whether or not a sitting president who is uh, facing an election should Um, attempt to appoint a Supreme Court justice. I don't need to rehearse that history. You watched it as it unfolded. Meanwhile, some liberals are hoping to replace the 82-year-old Justice Breyer with someone younger as soon as possible. With results from Georgia's Senate runoff elections appearing to indicate the Democrats will take control of the chamber, the Senate, liberals are quickly making their wishes known when it comes to the Supreme Court. Demand Justice, which is a liberal group that supports Supreme Court reform, they're already pushing liberal justice Stephen Breyer to retire so that President-elect Joe Biden can replace him with a black female jurist who would presumably be much younger than the 82-year-old Breyer. Justice Breyer's service on the court has been remarkable, and history will remember him even more fondly if he ends up playing a critical role in ensuring the appointment of the first black woman to the court. That's a quote from Demand Justice Executive Director Brian Fallon speaking to Politico. Timing his retirement in the coming year would guarantee that opportunity, and it would uh, be wise to do so because the window may prove a narrow one. Former State Representative Bakari Sellers tweeted Tuesday night that if Democrats took control of the Senate, Breyer should retire the minute Biden takes the oath of office this month. Speaking of ageism, if we get to 50, I need Justice Breyer to announce retirement at 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, Sellers said, and I need us to nominate and elect some federal judges. So the pressure is mounting for this jurist to take his place in the pantheon of retired associate justices. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the day's news. We'll also fill you in on what happens in Washington as the Electoral College was reviewed by a joint session of Congress presided over by the Vice President Pence. Well, no Kenosha officers are going to face charges in the Jacob Blake shooting, according to prosecutors. The Wisconsin police officer involved in that shooting of Jacob Blake last year, igniting several days of unrest that included two fatal shootings, will not face criminal charges. Well, the officer who fired, Rustin Shesky, 31, and the other officers uh, will not be charged according to the Kenosha County District Attorney Michael Gravely during a news conference. He said the decision was based on evidence that was not captured on widely shared cell phone footage of the August 23rd shooting. It's a narrow task uh, today. Um, It's a legal and professional task, he said. Everybody has seen the video. And so from their perspective, they have tried to uh, tried this case at their computer screens or from their living room. Bravely said Blake, 29, was armed with a knife that was not visible in the video footage and admitted to having one during the incident. Statements that he was unarmed contradict what Blake, who had an active felony warrant for his arrest at the time of the shooting, told authorities, uh, he said. He even tells us uh, at different times he had the knife in different hands, so he arms himself with a knife and refuses to drop the knife. Well, investigators found a knife on the floorboard. Of his vehicle, Gravely also announces that Blake will not face charges. 
In other news, the Louisville Police Department has announced the firings of two officers involved in the Breonna Taylor shooting, including the detective the FBI believes discharged the fatal bullet. Detective Miles Cosgrove and Detective Joshua Jaynes uh, were let go from their positions on Tuesday. Letters from Chief of Police Yvette Gentry informing them of their dismissal were released on Wednesday. Please be advised, effective this date, your employment with the Louisville Metro Police Department is terminated, both letters read, dated January 5th. Taylor, a black woman, was killed on the 13th of March last year by police executing a narcotics search warrant. None of the three white officers who fired into Taylor's homes were charged uh, by the grand jury in her death. Investigators say Cosgrove fired 16 rounds into the apartment after the front door was uh, breached and Taylor's boyfriend fired a shot at them. In a copy of Cosgrove's letter obtained by a local media, Gentry says he violated standard operating procedures involving the use of deadly force and that two of the 16 rounds were fired uh, were found in the body of Ms. Brianna Taylor. One of these rounds was the fatal uh, round that killed Ms. Brianna Taylor. Uh, She went on to add, the shots you fired went in three different directions, indicating you did not verify the threat or have a target acquisition. In other words, the evidence shows that you fired wildly at unidentified subjects or targets located within the apartment. In other developments, Kenosha protesters gathered after the Jacob Blake shooting results in no charges for police and progressives and Democrats. They slammed that uh, ruling for hypocrisy. Kyle Rittenhouse pled not guilty in the Kenosha shooting charges uh, that he is facing as well. Well, D.C. protesters and police clashed on the eve of the election certification vote. There were at least six six arrests and national security officials have been uh, briefed on a threat uh, to a fly a plane into the U.S. Capitol to avenge the death of an Iranian general. We'll tell you more about that. Well, stock futures uh, trade was mixed as investors awaited the results of the Georgia races and the fate of the U.S. Senate. And Democrats winning the Georgia Senate runoffs could trigger a 10 percent stock market sell-off, strategists say. Well, GM plans to upgrade hundreds of temporary U.S. employees to full-time jobs. And a U.S. judge has denied the effort to stop drilling in an Arctic uh, refuge. Apple will modify its executive bonuses based on environmental values in 2021. Well, Democrats take one, possibly two Senate seats with the other race being very close to call. But the turnout for Democrats was enormous. Some blame Trump for the Loeffler loss. Dave Wasserman called the Loeffler race so early. Twitter hit him with a warning label. He also gave Ossoff the win late in the evening, thought the race was still tight and Purdue had a slight lead at midnight. But again, both uh, Democrats in the lead at this point with 98 percent of the votes counted. Hong Kong police arrested dozens of pro-democracy leaders. Their crime, according to the story, they tried to organize an informal primary election last year for the city's legislature. Jay uh, Nordlinger points out that Hong Kong was promised 50 years. They will not see 25 brave, marvelous, inspiring people. Before your entertainment, objections will be raised in the certification of the election as it takes place today. From the Wall Street Journal, they point out that Mr. Biden has secured a majority of certified electors. Even flipping Georgia wouldn't have changed the Electoral College outcome. The Constitution fixes the presidential inauguration at January 20th, making impossible any scheme for a pre-inaugural electoral commission, even if that weren't a bad idea. The transition of power is moving forward, and it doesn't need Mr. Trump's concession to do so. 
Well, a study says that even after taking hormones, men still have a decided advantage over women in sports. This will certainly weigh, one would hope, heavily in the debate over whether or not men should be allowed to compete against women in collegiate and high school sports. Men who say they are women want to compete in the Olympics. The study was done to see if a year of hormones leveled the playing field a bit, but the facts did not match the feelings. Air traffic controllers have received a credible threat over the death of an Iranian general, well, credible, in quotes. Multiple air traffic controllers in New York heard a chilling threat Monday in audio obtained exclusively by CBS News. We are flying a plane into the Capitol on Wednesday. Soleimani will be avenged. Well, the threat refers to Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general killed last year in a U.S. drone strike ordered by President Trump. It was made on the one-year anniversary of Soleimani's death, for which Iranian officials have long vowed revenge. It's not clear who sent the threat, and while the government doesn't believe the warning of an attack is credible, it's being investigated as a breach of aviation frequencies, again, according to CBS News. Well, some folks are planning big trips once they get COVID vaccines. The story looks at a number of people age 60 plus making big travel plans. As for James and I, we'll just be right here. A single donor has given $500,000 to the recall effort. In Gavin Newsom's uh, case, John Kruger was particularly upset with the governor's orders limiting religious gatherings. $500,000 given to that effort. And a study has found that the top 10 cities experiencing a mass exodus, exodus rather, are all blue. The cities that have experienced a drastic reduction in residence is in order of starting with Nassau, New York, Bergen, New Jersey, Trenton, New Jersey, New York, New York, Newark, New Jersey, Chicago, Illinois, Bremerton, Washington, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Middlesex, New Jersey, Lake, Illinois. On the flip side, nine of the top 10 cities people moved to are red states for what it's worth. Well, it turns out that liberal and leftist policies are a lot more popular with politicians and woke voters than those who have to live with the consequences. Residents in New York have the highest tax burden of any state in the country. Connecticut is the sixth worst, New Jersey the seventh worst, and Illinois the ninth. So if you're planning on moving, you might want to take that into account. Well, a record 33% of an annual Gallup poll have no confidence in mass media. So I'm not sure how that uh, reflects uh, what the percentage would have been most recently. But 33% in this annual Gallup poll say that the majority of people, or 33%, have no confidence in mass media. Well, the U.S. has formal, uh, formally linked Russia to a massive ongoing cyber attack, and Iran is claiming it's installing 1,000 centrifuges after announcing expanded uranium enrichment. President Trump is barring U.S. transactions with eight Chinese apps, including Alipay. And Saudi Arabia announced oil cuts of one million barrels per day. Ohio's governor has signed a gun rights bill eliminating the duty to retreat, and Massachusetts plans to ban the sale of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035. And China has delayed entry to the World Health Organization team investigating the origins of COVID-19, even though the organization pledged that it wouldn't find a guilty party, whether or not there is actually one. On this day in history, 1838, Samuel Morse and Alfred Vail give the first successful public demonstration of their telegraph in Morristown, New Jersey. 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the State of the Union Address outlines a goal of four freedoms freedom of speech and expression, the freedom of people to worship God in their own way, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. 1945, George Herbert Walker Bush marries Barbara Pierce 
at the First Presbyterian Church in Rye, New York. 1968, a surgical team at Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California, led by Dr. Norman Shumway, performs the first U.S. adult heart transplant, replacing the heart of a 43-year-old man in a 54-year-old patient. The recipient would die 15 days later. 1974, a year-round daylight savings time begins in the United States on a trial basis as a fuel-saving measure in response to OPEC oil embargo. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to take a walk through the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Democrat John Ossoff said he won his Georgia Senate runoff race on Wednesday morning, as Republican David Perdue's campaign said they will exhaust all legal options to ensure only legally cast ballots are counted. Well, this campaign has been about health and jobs and justice for people of this state, and they will be my guide, uh, my guiding principle as I serve this state in the U.S. Senate, Ossoff said in a live streamed address this morning. Meanwhile, Democrat Raphael Warnock had projected is rather projected to defeat Senator Kelly Loeffler, according to uh, the decision desk. Loeffler encouraged her supporters uh, early Wednesday to keep fighting, refusing to concede despite Warnock's declaring victory. And as I mentioned earlier in the program, with 98 percent of the votes counted, both Democrats appear to have won their races by a very, very slim margin. With Warnock's projected victory, Democrats are one win away from controlling the Senate. And uh, we'll continue to follow that story. And I would expect before the day is out, we'll have final answers. Although, depending on the margin between the candidates in both races or either race, uh, the rival has the, uh, the right in the state of Georgia to call for a recount. Well, a victory for both these Democrats would make New York uh, Senator Chuck Schumer the majority leader, giving Democrats unified control of D.C. and the ability to force through their agenda. That means Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, statehood for Democrat stronghold D.C. and Puerto Rico, meaning, meaning rather four more Democrat senators and packing the Supreme Court. These are all on the line. That's uh, to say nothing of economic uh, uh well, hampering, if you will, taxes, regulations to cap off a pandemic shutdown and got any recovery. Well, as Louisiana Senator John Kennedy uh, joked in November, if Democrats win, you've got nothing to uh, worry about unless you are a taxpayer, a business owner, a parent, a cop, a gun owner, a person of faith or an unborn baby. So whew, I feel relieved. I uh, want to get to the bottom of FBI abuse of power or the Biden family dealings with China. Forget about it. If the uh, Democrats uh, predominate in the Senate. Those investigations will most assuredly come to an end. Well, it's a new day. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted this morning as Georgia Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff held the lead in their two runoff races for the U.S. Senate. Who's ready to push? AOC tweeted with emojis, and that's in all caps, push. Ready to push for retroactive COVID relief and to push for student loan cancellation for climate justice, health care, voting rights, ending the death penalty. What policies do you most want to push for? Um, AOC also retweeted something from Representative Pramila Jayapal, who wrote, Victory in Georgia must lead to transformative change across America. Recurring survival checks, union jobs that pay a living wage, guaranteed health care, racial justice, voting rights, immigration reform, climate action, repro justice, education, and much more. It can't wait. In another tweet, Jayapal wrote, Just practicing, Senate Minority Leader, rather, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell Sounding very, very good, she said. We got Mitch out of the way, AOC's fellow leftist Rashida Tlaib also tweeted. 
Newly elected uh, Cory Bush tweeted about the apparent Democrat flip of Georgia on Wednesday morning. Black women did this, uh, went on to tweet, but this isn't just black girl magic. This is the result of pure organizing, labor, and love that black women have poured into Georgia. Gratitude to every one of my sisters who willed the possibilities of this moment into existence. We see you and we love you. In a second tweet, Bush noted that she would uh, be joining AOC, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and Uh, Others on the House Oversight and Reform Committee in the 117th Congress, as directed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Representative Ilhan Omar had uh, not yet tweeted about the apparent Georgia results as of mid-morning Wednesday, but on Monday she tweeted, Combating systematic oppression requires systematic change. This means ending homelessness through my Homes for All bill. Uh, It means eliminating health disparities by uh, instituting Medicare for all. It means protecting people from the climate crisis by passing the Green New Deal. In a second tweet on Monday, Omar wrote, poverty is a policy choice. The next relief package must cancel rent payments and provide recurring checks. So canceling rent payments and providing a guaranteed income all on the agenda. Well, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 216 to 209 to reelect Nancy Pelosi as the speaker on the third of this month to lead the chamber's narrowest majority in two decades. Five Democrats defected, Representative Elisa Slotkin, Representative Abigail Spangberger, Representative Mike Sherrill voted present. Two Democrats voted for candidates other than Pelosi. Representative Connor Lamb voted for Representative Hakeem Jeffries, while Representative Jared Golden voted for Senator Tammy Duckworth. In a time marked by historically low trust in government, new voices are necessary to moving forward and achieving real progress, Spangberger said in a statement. Last Congress, I kept my promise to vote for new leadership upon my swearing in, and in this Congress, I remain consistent in my commitment to ushering in new leadership. Accordingly, I did not vote for Speaker Pelosi, end quote. Representative Cory Bush initially didn't respond when called to vote. Bush, a Black Lives Matter activist who was sworn into Congress earlier this same morning, is a member of the expanding progressive squad. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the de facto leader of that squad, also was absent from the floor when it came to her turn to vote. Both later voted for Pelosi. After telling their constituents they wouldn't support Pelosi for speaker last Congress, five House Democrats just went back to their promise or back on their promise and handed Pelosi the gavel for two more years of her failed and radical leadership. That's a quote from House Republicans in a statement apparently aimed at the progressive squad. Bottom line, Nancy Pelosi remains the speaker of the House. Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom's choice of Alex Padilla to replace Senator Kamala Harris may force the U.S. Senate to take a critical look at a $35 million contract that was awarded by Padilla, the state secretary of state, to affirm with deep ties to three Democratic presidential nominees. Now, Padilla awarded the contract to SKDK Knickerbocker, the Washington-based public relations and political strategy firm, in August as part of the state's program of providing mail-in ballots to all the state's 22 million voters. The purpose of the program, known as Vote Safe California, was reportedly to produce advertising to encourage voters to participate in the November election. Well, the program was partially funded by, with money rather, provided by the $2.2 trillion Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act of 2020, approved by Congress and signed into law in March by President Trump. 
it's illegal to use CARES Act funds to get out the uh, vote campaign activities. So that raises some ethical questions. Anita Dunn, one of SKDK's founders, was a senior advisor to former Vice President Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign and was White House communications director during the President Obama's first term. She once described China's communist dictator, Chairman Mao Zedong, as one of her favorite philosophers, a remark she later claimed was meant in jest. Three top House Republicans who have been calling for months for an official investigation of the SKDK contract issued a statement on the 22nd of last month reiterating their demand. In October, the trio, House Committee on Administration Ranking Member Representative Rodney Davis, House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform Ranking Republican Representative James Corner, and Representative Jamie Heiss, or rather Jody Heiss, the senior Republican on an Oversight Committee subcommittee, are raising questions and call for an investigation of the SKDK contract by the Election Assistance Commission. Before anyone should trust Secretary of State Alex Padilla being promoted to a U.S. senator, there are serious questions that he needs to answer about his use of federal funding California received from the CARES Act to help states administer the 2020 elections. So we'll continue to follow that story to determine whether or not there are questions asked, and I suppose the makeup of the Senate uh, will play a role in uh, whether or not that is taken as seriously as these three are suggesting it ought to be. Well, as mentioned earlier, Vice President Mike Pence announced Wednesday afternoon that he would not accede to President Trump's demand that he reject states of electors submitted by battleground states where the president has alleged massive fraud. It is my considered judgment that my oath to support and defend the Constitution constrains me from claiming unilateral authority to determine which electoral votes should be counted and which should not. Today, of course, was the day a joint session of Congress met in order to determine the outcome of the election, or more importantly, the Electoral College. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell rebuked President Trump during Wednesday's joint session of Congress, saying that Congress overturning the election results that Trump's urging would cause irreparable damage to the country. The voters, the courts, and the states have all spoken. If we overrule them, it would damage our republic forever, he said from the House floor. If this election were overturned by mere allegations from the losing side, our democracy would enter a death spiral. We'd never see the whole nation accept an election again, the Kentucky Republican went on to add. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a pro-Trump crowd has descended on Washington, D.C., and they were protesting the certification of the Electoral College. They apparently stormed Capitol Hill after being goaded by the president to de- in a defiant speech, rather. Well, the massive crowd numbering tens of thousands moved on the Capitol, where Vice President Mike Pence was overseeing the uh, certification of the Electoral College. After the president repeatedly urged them to do so, saying he would join them and vowing to never give up and never concede. Well, of course, his concession is not necessary for the transfer of power. The president, however, left for the White House after delivering his address and did not join the MAGA crowd. Capitol Hill police moved to evacuate the Cannon House office building after the crowd overwhelmed police and broke through the barriers. Flashbangs and tear gas were used on the crowd uh, with little effect. There were um, reports of multiple suspicious packages near the Capitol grounds, and the crowd subsequently broke into the building as both the House and the Senate sessions to certify the election were forced into recess, and the vice president was escorted out. One critic, the editorial um, board 
of National Review pointed out that Mike Pence surely understands his constitutional duty when Congress meets in joint session on Wednesday to count the Electoral College votes. The vice president's role is clear. He is to preside honorably, if uncomfortably, over the Democratic transfer of power as 306 electors are tallied for Joe Biden's victory. President Trump's Twitter feed, no surprise, is telling a different story. The vice president has the power to reject fraudulently chosen electors, he wrote Tuesday. Mr. Trump claims that he's the victim of a massive electoral conspiracy, yet he can't find the evidence to convince even conservative judges. Nevertheless, he wants Mr. Pence to throw out Mr. Biden's electors. This is a triple whammy. It's uh, false as a matter of fact because no fraudulent electors exist. It's false as a matter of law because the Constitution empowers the vice president merely to open the Electoral College certificates, not to count them, to say nothing of rejecting any. Finally, it is a betrayal of the steadfast uh, Mr. Pence that Mr. Trump is trying to discredit him in the eyes of GOP voters. Mr. Trump is showing once again that to him, loyalty is a one-way street. Well, some congressional Republicans, including Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, they've said that they also intend to contest the November results under the Electoral Count Act. The law gives them that right, despite its dubious constitutionality. Still, the effort looks as futile as it should be. Now, again, they do have, as members of Congress, they do have the right to contest the outcome. There's a two-hour debate window and then a final vote in both the House and the Senate in response to that debate. Well, the Wall Street Journal goes on to say the good news is that other Republicans are entering the breach to defend federalism and the Constitution. Take Senator Tom Cotton, whose presidential dreams are as high as Mr. Cruz's. The founders entrusted our elections chief to the state, chiefly to the states, not Congress. Mr. Cotton said on Sunday, overturning Mr. Biden's win would essentially end presidential elections. Any objections Wednesday to duly certified electors, Mr. Cotton added, will only embolden those Democrats who want to erode further our system of constitutional government. Well, heartening, too, is a statement from seven members of the House, including Freedom Caucusers Ken Buck and Chip Roy. Congress has one job here to count electoral votes that have, in fact, been cast, they said to unconstitutionally insert Congress into the center of the presidential election process would be stealing power from the people and the states. As they point out, five of the states that Mr. Trump is contesting have GOP legislatures, which declined to appoint alternative electors. Well, judging by his behavior, Mr. Trump is unhinged from political reality. Over the weekend, he phoned Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. In a long harangue, Mr. Trump suggested that 300,000 ballots were faked that 3,000 pounds of ballots were shredded and that technicians on Dominion voting systems moved the inner parts of the machine and replaced them with other parts. Mr. Trump seems to believe it. There's no way I lost Georgia, he said. There's no way. But in the words of his esteemed predecessor, John Adams, facts are stubborn things. Mr. Biden has secured a majority of certified electors. Even flipping Georgia wouldn't change the Electoral College outcome. The Constitution fixes the presidential inauguration to January 20th, making impossible any scheme for a pre-inaugural electoral commission, even if that weren't a bad idea. The transition of power is moving forward, and it doesn't need Mr. Trump's concession. Mike Pence is a man of honor, character, and honesty, Mr. Trump said in 2016, as he introduced his running mate for the first time. The selection probably reassured some Republican voters that Mr. Trump, the brash New York billionaire and ex-Democrat, would support traditional GOP priorities. Mr. Pence's reward has been four years of taunts about selling his soul. Now it's Mr. Pence's moment. uh, Turns out, rather, America needs him and needed him in that position 
all along. Well, one might argue that Mr. Trump is uh, delusional about the outcome of the election, but if we put it into context, it isn't, again, unprecedented. It's not all that unusual that the outcome of an election of an election is rejected by the opposite party. I appreciated that Stephen Groves, writing for the Daily Signal, points out that leftists are upset with the ongoing presidential transition, but uh, taking a look back at how they behaved in 2016 gives us, you know, a bit of a reminder of this is how politics is played out. Uh, Now, the phony Trump-Russia investigation before and during the Trump transition period, he and his campaign were under investigation by President Barack Obama's FBI based on the baseless Russian election conspiracy. Just two weeks before uh, Trump's inauguration with Obama's blessing, FBI Director Jim Comey met one-on-one with Trump in New York to inform him of the salacious details of a so-called Steele dossier, a collection of fabricated nonsense financed by the Hillary Clinton campaign. But the purpose of Comey's briefing was not to inform or enlighten Trump, but rather to gather information on him for the ongoing investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane. Well, after Comey told Trump about the bogus dossier, he dashed off to a waiting FBI vehicle where he had arranged to have a classified laptop waiting for him. Comey typed up the memo about the Trump uh, briefing while being driven to the FBI's building in New York, where he scurried to a secure room to gab with the Crossfire Hurricane team waiting back at FBI headquarters in Washington. Well, nothing says smooth transition like gaslighting the president-elect and reporting your impressions to FBI headquarters, right? Again, this is 2016. So this notion that there's never a challenge, that the transition is always smooth and that this is unprecedented certainly is not the case. What about the Senate confirmation of cabinet nominees? Incoming presidents traditionally are given leeway to pick their cabinet officials. That's supposed to be the norm. The president was elected by the people and therefore should be allowed to select the top officials to run the executive branch. Well, after Obama's election, Senate Republicans, then in the minority, voted for Obama's cabinet nominees in large numbers. Top nominees such as Hillary Clinton for Secretary of State, Eric Holder for Attorney General, Peter Orzag for Director of the Office of Management and Budget were confirmed 94 to 2, 75 to 21, and by unanimous consent, respectively. Well, that tradition ended after Trump was elected. Trump's nominees for Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and Director of the Office of Management and Budget Mike Mulvaney squeaked by their confirmation votes with 56 to 43, 52 to 47, 51 to 49, respectively. A collective total of uh, only five yay votes were cast by Democrats for those three nominees. Three of the five votes coming from Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. But for the fact that Republicans controlled the Senate by a razor-thin majority, uh, Trump would have begun his term without these crucial cabinet officials. Rather than give deference to the president's cabinet nominees, which has been the case historically, Senate Democrats joined the resistance from the get-go. And Trump has been criticized by the press for using the post-election months at the White House to cement his legacy, implementing regulations, appointing allies to advisory boards, auctioning off drilling rights in the Arctic National Wildlife Refugee and more. The Washington Post is unhappy with these actions, scribbling that the whirlwind of activity has bucked tradition of past presidents who have deferred to uh, on major policy actions during the lame duck period. Well, the Post and other Democrats have a short memory. If they'd only read what the New York Times reported after the 2016 election, it would be clear that Trump was uh, has plenty of precedent to rely upon. 
uh, December 31st, 2016, the New York Times. With less than three weeks before the Obama White House is history, the president is using every power at his disposal to cement his legacy and establish his priorities as the uh, law of the land. He has banned oil drilling off the Atlantic coast, established new environmental monuments, protected funding for Planned Parenthood clinics, ordered the transfer of detainees from Guantanamo Bay, criticized Israeli settlements and punished Russia for interfering in the recent elections through cyber attacks. Those all sound like major policy actions, it seems to me. Well, if Trump is bucking the tradition of past presidents, as the Post alleges, it must be presidents from the past other than Obama. And finally, let bygones be bygones. Should Trump sit idly by instead of cementing his legacy? Should Senate Republicans give a Biden administration's cabinet nominees more deference than Democrats gave Trump's nominees in 2017? Should John Durham, for example, now a special counsel, end his probe into the origins of the FBI's ridiculous crossfire hurricane investigation? Well, a case can be made that Trump and Senate Republicans should treat the Democrats' past behavior as water under the bridge, but the bigger political party, as it were, Perhaps that's what's best for the country. Time will tell, but it's unlikely that former Vice President Joe Biden will suffer the same shoddy treatment that Trump got during his presidential transition. However, Republicans can certainly make a good case that it's the transition Biden would deserve. So again, perspective, taking a look back. What goes around comes around, and history does, in fact, repeat itself. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up for the next couple of segments, we're going to hear from Jerry Pentengale. He's the author of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. That's coming up for the next couple of sessions of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the year is 2020. Mercifully, it's behind us. But far into the future, we'll be asking ourselves, What on earth just happened? Well, the virus and our response to it claimed many lives. And there's a new study that examines last year's deaths of despair. Now, we know those deaths are the direct result of COVID-19, but there were others as well that need to be considered as we look back. One of the most important questions, of course, is what we accomplished through our reaction to COVID-19. As individuals, you and I retreated to our homes to protect ourselves, to stop the spread of the virus. Governments mandated lockdowns, masks were mandated, social distancing, and more. The economy predictably cratered. All this certainly had consequences for our mental and physical health, our substance abuse, our kids' education. Was the cure worse than the disease? Well, there's a new study from Casey B. Mulligan who recently served as chief economist for President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors for about a year, and is a small step toward answering that question, was the cure worse than the disease? While the study focuses specifically on issues of who died and why through the 3rd of October of last year, and we'll have better analysis once the slow-moving federal bureaucracy gets more data together, but the study paints a pretty broad-brush picture of the death toll from COVID-19 and from our response to it, and there are deaths related to each. Well, the paper compares last year with previous years using a statistical model to predict what mortality would have looked like in 2020 if pre-existing trends had continued. Things actually got off to a good start with deaths below expectations, possibly thanks to a mild flu season. But from March through early October, excess deaths, as they're referred to, excess, totaled a shocking 250,000. 
Now, how much of this was just COVID itself? Well, we do have an official tally of COVID deaths, of course, but many worry that it's wrong to somehow um, consider that folks who died with uh, but not of COVID were included or that officials had a financial incentive to misclassify non-COVID deaths as COVID or that many genuine COVID deaths were misclassified in the other direction. So Mulligan, in his study, he digs into the data to see how believable the official numbers are. Well, at the beginning of the pandemic in late March and in early April, mortality among the very old, that's ages 85 and up, shot up considerably more than one would expect from the official COVID statistics. Now, this is likely um, uh, because the death, the healthcare system rather, hadn't yet figured out how to identify those deaths consistently. Well, starting in May, uh, the excess deaths, again, as they're referred to, and the official tally started to line up closely for this group, implying the official numbers are more or less right for that period. But something unsettling happened with working age men. They saw a gradual increase in excess deaths after the pandemic set in, above and beyond the official COVID tally. Now, this is a pattern that can't be uh, waved away as un- undercounted COVID deaths. These are, in all likelihood, largely deaths resulting from our response to the virus. Now, overall, the study estimates that uh, of those 250,000 total extra deaths, 30,000 were from causes other than COVID itself, um, which is a Sad and a very interesting claim. Now, in time, the government will uh, tally up the details from all the death certificates filed in 2020, and we'll know which kinds of deaths increase most. But in Mulligan's study, he provides some pretty strong evidence that deaths of despair, uh, as they're referring to them, or deaths from drug overdoses, alcohol abuse, and suicide were a significant factor. Now, for one thing, demographic groups that already had high rates of these deaths tended to see the biggest increases in COVID-19 excess deaths last year. And for another, the early uh, data that we have on overdoses suggests that they rose markedly, at least in the first half of 2020. Now, this is true both in federal data running through May and in local data from several counties that go a bit uh, later. So was the cure worse than the disease? If we take the question literally and go by the study estimates, the disease killed 220,000, while the cure killed only, in quotes, 30,000. So it isn't even close, or at least it wasn't as of early October when the paper's data run out. But if we're trying to figure out what we gained from the decisions that killed 30,000, the real question isn't how many people did did die of COVID, but how many people didn't die of COVID thanks to those decisions. Well, if the lockdowns and other measures lowered the COVID death toll by even, say, one-fifth, they probably reduced the overall number of deaths, though the people... Uh, The measures uh, killed were younger and everyone else suffered a reduced quality of life while the measures were in effect, too. Well, there's a ton more to learn about all of this, and I'm looking forward to learning more in the days ahead. All the way back to May, uh, there was information compiled at a very long list of studies or from a very long list that sought to determine how effective the lockdowns had been at stopping the virus. And the conclusions were pretty scattered. Well, since then, there's been even more research and some places with seemingly effective responses have gone on to suffer badly in subsequent ways. We won't know where everyone ends up until the pandemic is over, and that won't be until sometime in the future. And even then, there will be intense arguments over what the effect of lockdowns had and whether the benefits were worth the cost. 
Now, it's very hard to tell what might have happened if individuals and governments had behaved differently and very hard to weigh costs and benefits that are so varied and uncertain. But it's certainly worth trying to understand um, the outcome of it all. Well, the question of who died and how much is uh, uh, and how is uh, much simpler, but no less important. On that question, at least, the answers are pretty quick coming into focus, and nothing about the picture is very pretty. But at some point, we'll understand better, and perhaps that will inform decisions that are made in the future as a result of this pandemic. That said, the biggest pandemic is the culture of death in the U.S. California leads the nation with a population of roughly 39.5 million. That's according to the Census Bureau. But even if we add 3 million of that calculation, it would still fall short of the 42.7 million preborn souls that were exterminated in their mother's wombs globally in 2020. Data provided by the World Meter reveal that as of December 31st, there were 42.7 million unborn babies killed by abortion in 2020. Discern's Jenny Mount makes the uh, statement that, Uh, that that number far outpaced cancer, which came in at 8.2 million, smoking at 5 million, COVID-19 in 1.8 million, and HIV-AIDS at 1.7 million deaths worldwide. Now, abortion caused more deaths than cancer, smoking, alcohol, excuse me, HIV-AIDS, malaria, automobile accidents, and COVID-19 combined. Now, just sit on that for a moment and consider what that means. These were not spontaneous miscarriages. These were abortions sought and completed. Now, for anyone who even um, with even an ounce of integrity, this is nothing short of astounding. Yet it's merely a completely ignored statistic among a good chunk of the general populace, both here and abroad. Even if global abortion amounts to essentially wiping out a state greater than the size of California in any given year. Now, read that stat again. Worldwide abortion caused more deaths than cancer, smoking, alcohol, HIV, AIDS, malaria, automobile accidents and COVID-19 combined. In other words, it's a pandemic far greater than the cumulative effect of said diseases and misfortunes. Now, here's another troubling reality. Democrats here in America want not only to do um, away with the Mexico City policy, but also repeal the Hyde Amendment. Now, both of these actions would add insult to injury by further padding the number of abortions, not just here, but around the world on the taxpayer dime. So as we're considering the impact in 2020 of COVID-19, perhaps we would do well to consider the impact of a practice that has gone on for decades, the practice of abortion here and around the world. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Jerry Pittengale. He's the author of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, it's been two decades since Mark Knowles' scandal of the evangelical mind. And the question is now being raised, are we on the threshold of another crisis of intellectual maturity in Christianity? Or are the opportunities for faithful intellectual engagement and witness even greater now than they were before? Well, the book, The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future, asks poignant questions and gives uh, answers in a series of essays that invites readers to a virtual summit meeting 
on the current state of the evangelical mind. The insights of national leaders in their uh, fields will aid uh, us readers uh, to reflect on the past contributions of evangelical institutions for the life of the mind, as well as prospects for the future. Among the contributors, uh, Richard uh, Miao, um, Mark Knoll, Joanne Lyon, Mark Galley, and many others. The state of the evangelical mind frames the, uh, the resources needed for the church, universities, seminars, parachurch organizations to chart the course for the future, both separately and together. Well, joining me today is one of the uh, contributors and editor uh, to this um, compilation, and I'm just delighted to have uh, Jerry um, Pattengall with us. He holds special appointments at Indiana Wesleyan University, the Museum of the Bible, Ecclesia College, the Sagamore Institute, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and Tyndale House uh, Cambridge. We are delighted to talk about this series of essays that gets us all thinking about the state of the evangelical mind. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be on your show, and I must tell you and your viewers that uh, when you read your bio, it says that you've been uh, uh, with a station for 20 years in some capacity. Your youthfulness sounds like you started <laughs> when you were 10, so... Uh, must be nice. It, it is rather shocking to hear it said of yourself <laughs> that you could have done anything for that length of time. I can definitely, uh, definitely relate. I, uh, this October, I will have been at this station for 30 years, and someone said that aloud just the other day. I found it shocking, even though it was entirely <laughs> accurate. So you have my sympathy. Uh, <laughs> well, this yeah, is an well, interesting... You're in good, yeah, you're in a good part of the world, though, to uh, uh, spend a lot of time, so... Ah, yes, we we love it here. Now, the state of the evangelical mind might lead some listeners to think that this is a conversation among academics about the future of seminaries, universities, and parachurch organizations, and has little to do with a rank-and-file believer who sits in pews once a week and is engaged in Bible study and trying to encounter the culture. So maybe we can just begin by talking about why this is a relevant subject that really is a part of an ongoing conversation that began many years ago with regard to the state of the evangelical mind. Oh, yeah, that's actually a great segue into the book, because the actual um, big takeaway from the book is what's happening in the pew with all the research and all of the gains at the Christian university or in the parachurch or seminaries. In fact, Jamie Smith, who's one of the contributors, um, he said, basically, when I look at what's happened, and for him, it was a recent election. I don't know people's politics, but uh, for him, he was wondering um, if people are concerned about particular things, an 80-some percent vote in favor of Donald Trump, but he he wanted to know if that uh, was showing that the all of the research and all the work among the academics is working or not. And others would say, oh, yes, and so it depends on where you are on the, the side of the political spectrum there. And so the main takeaway, regardless of which side of the political divide you're on, is Mark Knoll, 20 years ago, said that Christians just really aren't publishing on the main stage. And since that time, Books and Culture, you know, it had a great run. It just, mm-hmm. uh, it, it just um, uh, closed due to finances, but had a great run and was solid. John Wilson's a good friend, and I still work with him in other capacities. He, he's the editor of Books and Culture. Uh, but a lot of things in, in the book, Mark Knoll's essay shows that since that time, a lot of great things happened. A lot of great books were published. He said when he wrote that essay, he looked around Wheaton College where he was at the time. There were a lot of strong books, but none of them were outside the Christian publishing houses. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, today, 
if you look at where Jamie Smith's at, Calvin College, you look at Indiana Wesleyan, we've had probably 200 books published uh, just in the last few few years. It's a pretty large university. But that wasn't the case when he wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And so Jamie Smith and others in this book are saying, so what? What about all these books? Does it really inform the person in the pew to help them understand better the people that go to um, uh, concerts uh, to hear you uh, and others and, and to hear you speak, you and Dan, when you sing? I think you guys still try one sing. And so the book is about, what about those people going to those Christian concerts? What about the people out there? Are they um, gaining anything from all of these new books that come out by the academics? And are they really informing people in their choices? And so um, that's really the big takeaway from this book. Seminarians, are they coming to a more obedient um, place in their lives uh, before God? Are they understanding God better? Are they better teachers of Scripture? Um, Or are they learning erudite things? And so... Um, that's really what the challenge of this book is. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't a novel. You can't rush to the end and see what the answer is. But <laughs> was there generally a consensus that we're moving, maybe not as effectively or as quickly as we'd like, that we're moving in a direction that is constructive, that the evangelical mind is um, robust, or are there, are there still big question marks about whether or not um, we are taking advantage of opportunities that are available to us? Well, I think there's a consensus by all the contributors that the evangelical mind is becoming more robust among the educated. And uh, the the authors are split. Now, these are overall pretty conservative authors, Mm -hmm. at least orthodox authors. Uh, And we have a sequel book coming out as well, um, Public Intellectuals and the Common Good, with John Perkins and and Miroslav Wolf and others coming out um, in about a year and a half from this. But uh, in one essay, again, Jamie Smith, Jamie Smith said, I looked at, and uh, this helps to answer your question mm-hmm. directly, Jamie Smith said, you know, when I saw the ECPA's top book award last year, it was Tim Tebow's book. And he said, so what's that tell you? And so Jamie would be saying, all of this book, all this stuff we're doing, all of these uh, projects, and you're choosing, um, and you know, he would be saying, a lightweight book. Not that it's not a good book, but it's not. he, he doesn't say it's provocative, think deeper. And I was moderating the session, Georgina, and I said, Jane, he's, he's a phenomenal speaker. Um, I, I uh, booked him once. We had to go to another room because there were 200 people, couldn't get in. But I said, you know, so first of all, Full disclosure, I've been a longtime judge of the ECPA Book Award. I <laughs> said, <laughs> just figured out this. This is a packed, a packed room at the Sacramento Institute in Indianapolis. And uh, I said, um, and also there's other categories. ECPA is the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. And I said, but you know, I said, really, there's different, there's different types of books written for different purposes. And the mass, the masses out there resonated with Tim's book, and I said I happen to know through a friend of mine who's a producer that Tim gained royalties to produce a pretty good Christian movie. And I said, so I challenge you, Jamie, you know, to become a judge if you want to make a difference in any way. And I think he did. So, um, is it making a difference? Are we reaching them? Uh, I, I would say yes. I, I think there's so many great books. And a lot of the a lot of the people who are writing the finer uh, provocative books at the academic level 
uh, may not even be reading some of them. They're reaching the pew with more regularity that are in practical theology and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you could probably name four or five that have uh, that have helped um, people in your church. So I, I would say it's a it's a both and. Yeah, yeah. And so 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 that would be my quick answer here. Um, the the place that was struggling the most, I think, over the last several years. Um, was actually not the Christian college, but the seminary. And the seminaries, as you know, really struggled in the United States overall. And then you have seminaries like at Indiana Wesleyan that started about 10 years ago and were full immediately. And, you know, it's being more sensitive to the needs of the pastor and getting back to teaching, uh, you know, teaching the basics um, of Scripture and how that relates to the pew. And, you know... So, so that I, I think is one of the, you know, one of the lessons we're looking at here. Stanley Harwa said years ago in a book I reviewed, he said we need to keep in mind that the whole reason we have Christian education is so that we understand God more fully. He said, so no matter what else you're doing in Christian colleges or seminaries, he said that's the reason that you're a Christian university. It's some places like Taylor University and Indiana Wesleyan, Huntington, and Calvin. That, that really is the essence of what what the schools are doing and um, Cedarville, Wheaton, you know, so that's some of the exciting um, things that are happening. And you know, this last year, Georgine, two years ago or so, um, the oldest seminary in the country closed Andover Newton. Hmm. One of the authors on a TV series I'm working on, uh, uh, the state of faith 2020 uh, through TVN, uh, one of the people helping me is a graduate. He's one of the last graduates. And I just reviewed a book from Charlie Phillips from the McClellan Foundation. It's a friend. I was reading it, and I noticed that the book was about a fellow, a mass of parks who's in the Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, lineage um, in theology. He had won the major award in the entire, um, in, in all of North America for theology. And it was a major award during his lifetime given at the preeminent school for orthodoxy and over Newton. And now it's closed because it had gone mm. so far away from teaching the basics. So, so I think this book gets at uh, making sure that the colleges, uh, seminaries, uh, parachurch organizations are resonating with the pew, but it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what you can expect in the book, because I think it's very um, helpful for us to think about where we stand in terms of a, a robust evangelical community that's thinking deeply and having an impact on our culture. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, I'm having a conversation with Jerry Pattengale. He is one of the editors of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. And for those of us who care about uh, our place in culture and uh, life today in terms of our faith and uh, evangelical worldview, this is an excellent um, thing to stimulate conversation, I think, among those of us who uh, who care. Now, let's talk about the book itself. I have the benefit of having the book in hand. Our listeners do not. Let's talk about its structure and some of the contributors, because this is a pretty impressive uh, lineup of contributors. Uh, yes, it is. Um, if you like history, you know, T- Tim Larson um, is one of the contributors, and anything, he's at Wheaton, about anything Tim, Tim writes, I would 
recommend you read. And then Mark Galley, um, many of you or most of you would know Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. Mark is the editor, and Mark closes the book. It basically says, let's not abandon the term evangelical. He said, um, let's endorse it for all that it is. It's, you know, it is the gospel. It's about the gospel. So Mark is one of the contributors. Julian Lyon, um, I don't know if you've had her on your show, Georgine, but she uh, started um, World Hope. Remember uh, Limbs of Hope that uh, gave some of the um, uh, survivors um, of terrorist activities um, limbs. And she's the first woman uh, general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church, and Janie Smith at Taylor, and then Lauren Winter at Duke. Uh, Lauren's fun, no matter um, uh, where you meet or what context she's <laughs> fun, the Mark Knoll. And then Richard Mao does introductions. So so that's the cast of people. And then uh, also David Mahan, excuse me, David Mahan uh, from Yale. And um, he he writes a, a piece with Donald Smedley on the parachurches. And um, I'd, I'd like to read some numbers that he gives here that might Please. actually be of interest. Is that, is that okay, Yes. Jordan? So while we're debating what's happening in evangelical circles— and if we like the name evangelical, and even even the parachurch group that David Mahan's at at Yale, uh, they used to be part of Campus Crusade, which became Crew. They decided to become part of a collective for the Ivy League school, so they don't have that name anymore. And in a sense, they're less less aggressive evangelical, if you were, or evangelistic anyway. But he gave them numbers for InterVarsity Fellowship in 2000, and. Um, he said that there were 1,500 decisions just in our varsity Christian fellowship in 2000. But then he said, um, what's interesting is what was taking place in crew. And he said that there were over uh, 127 decisions to become Christians among the crew or Campus Crusades group in 2010 and 11. He said it jumped to more than 200,000 in 2013 and the 378,000 converts in 2015 and 16. That's almost 400,000 people became Christians through the work of Campus Crusade. And and so this book is actually bringing to light, uh, you know, we don't get everything right. Um, evangelicals have been highly criticized by uh, people um, because of what's happened in politics, mm-hmm. when, again, whether you know one side of the aisle or the other. But while all that's going on, there's still a lot of people becoming Christians, and there's a lot of things happening around the world, uh, especially overseas. I just came back from Rwanda, and you see the intensity of the evangelicals there, and it is amazing. So there's still a lot of wonderful things going on, and I think sometimes it can be myopic when you only associate the word evangelical with political debates, Mm -hmm. things of that nature, and not the philanthropic aspects of things that are happening. Now, half a century ago, um, anti-intellectualism was the concern among evangelicals. Have we stepped beyond that? And what would you, or how would you and the contributors to the state of the evangelical mind, how would you characterize the challenge that we face moving forward in the 21st century? (laughs) Yeah, I'm 60 years old, so so. (laughs) <laughs> I, I actually came came in on the tail end of the intellectual. You know, a lot of the schools, uh, even before my time, 
when you think of Christian colleges and where they're built, like Houghton College is a great school, but it's built, well, it's, it's built in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's gorgeous. Well, it was built, in a sense, to get away from the world. And it was certainly an anti-secular um, time because of what was happening in Germany and in a lot of the uh, strong liberal uh, teaching. Well, in the age of the Internet and... Um, you know the mega churches and a lot of a lot of the, the movements that are going on. I think there's a call among millennials to have substance uh, in, in what you're doing and holding you to task, you know, on what you're saying. And and so I don't sense in this book and other things that we've slipped at all in you know into anti-intellectualism. Um, if anything in the church, I think what we've seen, even in these authors in the discussion, is authenticity uh, has increased among um, spiritual teachers in, in conservative churches because uh, I think the millennials um, fared out those who are not genuine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so so that's actually a, po- a positive thing. Um, that would be you know one of the one of the things that has developed. In terms of the, I don't know inst- if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, it I, does. In terms of the institutions that we rely upon to uh, to help form the evangelical mind, to inform and, and influence the church, um, what are some of the challenges? I know that uh, economics can be a, a real challenge uh, for these institutions to thrive. Uh, are they being sufficiently supported? Are there uh, is there so much competition that they're less effective? How would you describe the challenge they face? Um, as we move into uh, and continue to move into the 21st century? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Of course, you know, with the radio station you have, you know, the um, the, the, the very real challenges on the finances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of scenarios have closed due to funding. And, and an institution, um, my definition of an institution, is um, a systematic response to recurring need. And And... In order for it to be systematic, there has to be sustenance. And some people don't believe in endowments. They believe that it leads you to liberalism. Um, uh, there's many cases where that leads you, you know, down the wrong path when you get comfortable. And, you know, a lot of institutions are heavily endowed, have lost their way totally as a Christian institution. And so, um, yes, the, 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 the Christian colleges across the nation are struggling I won't give any names here, but they've had, you know, enrollment situations in only 50 students at a lot of schools um, results in millions of lost revenue. So that's an issue. Um, you know, typically over 80% of all the giving in the country comes to Christian churches. And so that really hasn't changed. And so I I would say that if if you're reaching... Uh, what we find, if, you, if you're reaching the person in the pew with a message um, that is attached to orthodoxy and you're doing it in an engaging way, then from the early church forward, that's been the time and, and the way that uh, you know, you're, you're finding yourself um, supported. And I, I happen to you know, have been privileged to work with a lot of wealthy families, and you know, they, they don't necessarily look for, for organizations that are that have money to keep going and so forth. They're being asked for money, but what they're looking for, uh, and the ones I've worked closely with the Greens and others, they're looking to see if, if God's anointing has been on those organizations. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to the funding part, you can be as highly educated as you want to be, or you can be, or choose to be. But if 
if you're a part of a ministry that isn't meeting a spiritual need, I, I think you are going to have um, financial problems sooner or later. I mean, you just are. And so I, I think that's going to be with us, um, you know, until the rapture. So I mean, that's, that's my, my understanding, having been on a lot of boards and a lot of, yeah. uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of Christian causes. We're almost that's out of time, Christian, but I... Okay. I have to ask you about um, theological orthodoxy. I know for many institutions, uh, the subject of same-sex marriage, for example, uh, or same-sex attraction has been a major issue that has been somewhat divisive. Is that an issue that's being adequately addressed within institutions that are informing uh, the church and the evangelical mind? Or is there concern there? Uh, yeah, it's 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 being addressed, I think, at about every corner. Um, Shirley Hoekstra at the CCCU headquarters, um, it's one of the biggest challenges she had, and she, I think she lost some members in trying to be loving and, and, and accepting and yet still be orthodox, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, yeah, it is being addressed on every corner. In, in this book, it's, it just it's, doesn't happen to be a topic within this book that is addressed, but nearly every place I go, it's it's either a litmus test discussion. Now, when I was in Rwanda, it really wasn't a discussion. I mean, they were pretty pretty entrenched and solid on their beliefs on that issue. So that um, you know, it, with the Anglicans, they were definitely um, conservative Anglican, and so for them, it was wasn't even a discussion. You know, so. Uh, it's about as uh, clear a uh, case for most of the Anglicans. Uh, Ang- Anglicans in Rwanda that I met would be akin to the um, conservative Christians or fundamentalists, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago, yeah. or those of us today who still believe in the fundamentals. So uh, it's a thorn- it becomes a thorny subject, but it, I- I've seen it addressed in, in very uh, helpful and insightful ways with- without disbanding uh, without throwing out Romans 1, you mm-hmm. know, and so to do it in a way that still endorses um, Orthodox teaching, but that Orthodox teaching that also comes with the evangelical call to, to love your neighbor. Well, the book is titled The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections on the Past, Prospects for the Future. A great essays by a number of names you may be familiar with and others you should be familiar with and will be after reading the book. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Pattengale. I appreciate your work in helping to compile this, and we look forward to the next volume that's coming out in about a year and a half. Oh, yeah. And I will <laughs> say, I forgot to mention, it's, it's rated first in new releases in several categories, Exciting, and the other editors, Todd Ream uh, from Taylor University and Chris Devers from uh, Johns Hopkins University, really worked together on this, and it was a labor of love, and, and John Boyd at University Press. So it was a wonderful project to be a part of. Well, well done, and thank you so much for uh, making it available. And congrats on the success of your show. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Blessings. Bye-bye. Again, the book is titled The State of the Evangelical Mind. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, here we are in 2021 looking back over a, a presidential election that ended with, well, a lot of fanfare and fury. And while the legislative branch has, fo- has been the focus of much of our attention, the Supreme Court, the judiciary, 
is also significant coming up through the beginning of this year. Well, since it's uh, it began its October term, the Supreme Court has already weighed in on several pretty big issues. The day before Thanksgiving, you may or may not have noticed, it found that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's coronavirus restrictions placed an unfair burden on houses of worship. Uh, the first in a series of favorable religious freedom nods. Well, the court in December decided against taking up a challenge to President Trump's order, excluding illegal immigrants from the census, setting the stage for future fights. Well, there's much more to come in the spring, and with the addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the court is expected to swing in a decidedly conservative direction. And I wanted to mention just a few of the things that they're going to be hearing. Now, as I mentioned, there's some pressure now being brought to bear on Associate Justice Breyer, suggesting by some progressives in Washington that he should resign moments after uh, President-elect Biden uh, finishes his oath of office at the inauguration, which would give them an opportunity to replace him with a young African-American jurist who would be extremely liberal. That said, it's not at all clear that he's willing to take up that um, suggestion. But some of the issues that will be heard and answered this spring gay rights and religious liberty. And one of the first cases argued since Barrett's confirmation, the courts weighed uh, in on Catholic-run foster care agencies, religious beliefs against the city of Philadelphia's anti-discrimination laws. The case was Fulton versus Philadelphia. In the latest chapter, in an ever-escalating war over the balance between protections for religious groups and gay and transgender activists. Well, it arose back in 2018 when Philadelphia severed its ties with a Catholic group alleging that the church's teachings, which do not recognize gay marriage as legitimate, threaten the rights of gay couples seeking to raise children. When the two sides presented arguments in November, the court was skeptical of Philadelphia's claim. Multiple justices pointed out that although the Catholic group didn't recognize same-sex marriage, it had never encountered a situation where it had to refuse um, working with a same-sex couple. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, he observed that it seemed like Philadelphia was looking for a fight. Then there's the constitutionality of Obamacare. Since it passed in 2010, former President Barack Obama's signature achievement has been the subject of a slew of legal challenges. In this latest one, California versus Texas, a Texas-led group of 20 state uh, alleged that uh, after Congress in 2017 removed Obamacare's individual mandate, no longer requiring people to pay a minimum tax for health insurance, the entire law's legitimacy is in question. Now, their position is backed by the Trump administration, which will soon be a memory, which throughout the president's term has pushed for dismantling Obamacare. Now, if the court finds the law unconstitutional, more than 20 million people could lose uh, their health coverage. The court upheld the individual mandate in 2012 in the case National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius, and they argued that its power and, by extension, the legitimacy of the entire act lay in Congress's tax power. In Texas' view, this means that with no tax, the rest of the act must fail. And then there's the question of compensation for college athletes. The NC2A's control over how student-athletes are compensated has long been a pretty hot topic among sports fans and one that the league has sought to keep out of the courts. But in the past few years, a number of states have increasingly pressured the league to allow players to receive direct compensation for their names, their images, and their likeness. Well, the NC2A responded in 2019. They allowed uh, the loosening of those restrictions with new rules set to go into effect in 2021. But in December, the court agreed to consider whether it's going to relax even further the NC2A's control of how players are rewarded for their work. 
Then there's legal protections for software codes. Google and Oracle, they've been locked in a legal battle since 2010 when the software developer alleged that Google had infringed on its copyrighted Java platform when the tech giant developed its Android operating system. Oracle originally sought a $9 billion settlement from Google, but as the smartphone industry's uh, growth has exploded in the past decade, it now is expected to request much more. Well, the court heard arguments back in October and indicate that it's uh, seeking a solution by which it can protect software codes without upending the tech industry. Good luck with that. Well, the case has drawn significant attention from film, music, and publishing industries, with many prominent figures throwing support behind Oracle alleging a similar abuse of their materials by Google. Well, many tech companies, including Microsoft, backed up Google, pointing to its fair use claim. And then there is a question of reparations for Holocaust survivors. And again, we're talking about cases we can expect to hear from the Supreme Court regarding uh, this spring. Well, American courts typically avoid entanglement in foreign litigation, but this term, the Supreme Court has heard three cases in which international plaintiffs are seeking a trial for foreign atrocities in the United States. In the first two, Republic versus Hungary versus Simon and Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip, Holocaust survivors argue that they should be allowed to sue for reparations in American courts. In the third, Nestle USA versus Doe, former African child slaves are attempting to extract damages from American chocolate companies. Well, in all three cases, the court appeared undecided on how to act. On the one hand, the plaintiffs argue that the crimes committed against them fall under an expropriation exception that allows U.S. courts to intervene in overseas disputes. But on the other, the U.S. government, foreign governments, and chocolate companies warned that opening the doors to worldwide litigation could trigger a foreign policy crisis. So it will be very interesting to see what the court has to say in 2021 with its newest member and the possibility of an older member stepping aside. Finally, I wanted to share with you that the head of the World Food Program believes that 2021 could see famines of biblical proportions as the economic struggle of COVID-19 may hamper global responses to food shortages caused by military conflicts, the rise of Islamic extremism, and locust infestation. Just uh, weeks ago that we focused on the impact that has had on the livelihoods of individuals in Africa. Well, despite receiving historic levels of funding and leading the food assistance branch of the United Nations to a Nobel Peace Prize since he took the helm in 2017, the 63-year-old um, uh, executive director, David Beasley from Washington, D.C., a former Republican governor of South Carolina, has expressed concern for the funding problems that could be in store for 2021. He warned that fiscal realities of the COVID-19 pandemic could lead to a decrease in funding at a time when as many as 270 million could be pushed to the brink of starvation. When I joined the WFP, the number of people on the brink of starvation versus general hunger was 80 million people. There is a technical term for that, but it was 80 million marching towards starvation. That number spiked went up to 135 million at the end of 2019, primarily because of man-made conflicts compounded on top of that with climate extremes and destabilized or fragile governments. On top of that, COVID comes and the number of we anticipate based upon economic deterioration and based on COVID decisions is now 270 million people that are marching to the brink of starvation. 
I mention it so that we can be prayerful. We can seek opportunities to be part of the solution. And again, this is a statement from the World Food Program, believing that 2021 could see famines of biblical proportions. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And, of course, thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thanks for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you will join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.